The following lecture is provided by Biblical Training. The speaker is Dr. Douglas Moo. For more information, go to www.biblicaltraining.org. Enjoyed our time yesterday. Hope we continue to enjoy our time today as we move on in Galatians to a pretty key text now, which we're going to spend quite a bit of time on, both this morning and more broadly this afternoon, considering some of the theology that emerges from the text. I'm referring here to Galatians 2.15 to the end of the chapter, 2.15 to 21. Certainly one of the most important theological paragraphs in Galatians, and one of the more important theological paragraphs in the New Testament, I suspect. So we do want to spend some, some good time here this morning. Again, let's, let's, let's pause and, and take time to get the passage in front of us. And if I could ask someone to read it again out of whatever version you're using, so the rest of us can follow along, we can then maybe make some initial notes about where our translations differ again, and uh, see what that might reveal about what's going on in the text as well. So pay careful attention to what you're hearing, uh, even as you are reading your own version. Okay, so who who would like to read for us this morning? All right, Wesley, thanks. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Boy, didn't that translation read well? Amen. That was just just a great translation. What what was that, Wesley? (laughs) That was the 2011 United States. Was it? How about that? Again, I apologize for bias. I'm the chair of the translation committee for the NIV, so I have a bias toward that version. But there you heard the updated NIV. Any comments initially on what you might have found to be different in your own version that, that's, that's kind of stood out to you? Yeah, yeah James. The older NIV has observing the law, uh-huh. and that's the works of the law. Right. Yeah, that was a conscious decision we made. We're going to talk about that phrase. I don't want to go into a long history of the thing, but it's kind of related to what we're talking about this morning. The original NIV, full Bible in 1984, tended to do things like that a little bit more than the update does. In other words, works of the law is a little bit more straightforward rendering of the Greek here. Uh, Observing the law is a little bit interpretive. And it probably worked okay when the translation was being done in the 80s, but now that there's been so much discussion, which we'll talk about this morning, about this phrase, works of the law, when we updated the NIV, we said, you know, we kind of need to represent that as, as almost like a technical phrase uh, and just render it a little bit more straightforwardly 
so that uh, people can see what some of the options are, because there's, as we're going to see, there's a lot of debate about that little phrase. So, yeah, uh, works of the law. Key phrase three times in Galatians 2.16, and a phrase that's been at the heart of a lot of the debates we were talking about yesterday, new perspective, approaches, and so on. So we're going to spend some time on that phrase today. Anything else that you noticed as you heard that being read? I've got the NRSV. Uh-huh. Um, verse 18 is different for me, but if I build up again the very things I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I'm a transgressor. In verse 21, it, there's one word that was different, and I do not nullify. Uh-huh. Nullify or, or set aside. Yeah, not too much difference in meaning there in English, probably. They're both sort of adequate ways to translate the Greek word being used there. Yeah, okay. Any other differences? I suspect this is a text where most of the translations are fairly similar. Does anyone have the, um, the uh, Common English Bible uh, or the um, uh, Net at all? What is, uh, read read uh, verse uh, 16, would you, David? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that no one is justified by works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's far enough. Did you hear that? The faithfulness of Jesus Christ? What, what, what do most of you have there? Faith in Jesus Christ. There's another key debated phrase we're going to have to talk about this morning. The Greek allows it to be rendered either way. And uh, again, the, the point is, using a variety of translations, when you don't have the Greek especially, gives you a wonderful window into some of the issues in the text. And it's especially valuable because, you know, having worked on a translation committee, I know how these things work, translation committees do not put things in the text or the footnote that aren't pretty strong, legitimate options. That's where, for myself, I don't recommend people using one-person translations of the Bible because they are going to betray a lot of the idiosyncrasies of that one person, hence the message. Gives us a lot of Eugene Peterson's ideas in theology, but he's just one individual. So when you, you, you are, are using versions like NIV, uh, NRSV, uh, the Net Bible, uh, NLT, ESV, uh, NASB, these are all versions that have been worked on very hard by committees of scholars, and the options you'll see represented there are options that have gone through the filter, as it were, and are, are, are things that are, are seriously worth considering as legitimate ways to understand the passage. Gary? One translation, uh, one word jumped out at me when he was reading it, because I was reading it in the English Standard Version that you just said, uh-huh. is uh, uh, verse 17 toward the end where it said, Christ promotes sin in the NIV, and in the ESV it says servant. Christ is a servant of sin or, or, or a minister of sin. Uh, you, yeah. that's, a, that's a pretty powerful, I mean, that, to me, is that going to be the same translated, servant of sin, promotion? Well, common English Bible calls it servant of sin. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, servant of sin would be a more straightforward rendering, which is typical of the ESV. I don't like the word literal. I won't go into that whole issue here, but um, it's a more straightforward rendering. And it kind of betrays the translation philosophies here. If you look at the ESV and ask, what does it mean to be a servant of sin? Uh, Well, serving sin, advancing the cause of sin, hence promotes sin, NIV, you see. So in our our view, that's kind of gets at what the Greek is getting at there, helping English readers kind of have a sense of of what the text means. Any other differences? Yeah, Steve. Uh, I've noticed the Net Bible a number of places, especially in the New Testament, seem to kind of go a different direction than the other translations as a whole. Uh, Any insight into why that is? Is it because of the scholars who worked on it or, or what? We'll talk about the faithfulness of Christ issue. That's a good example of the influence of Dan Wallace. Some of you know that name, perhaps a Greek professor at Dallas who's written a very widely used intermediate Greek grammar. And Wallace argues strongly for that way of construing that construction in the grammar. And it's no surprise you see it popping up in the Net Bible then. That's one of the reasons I like the Net Bible, to be honest. Uh, I don't use it as my base trans but it has a lot of interesting options that they, they, they argue for very well. Some of you know the Net Bible comes packaged with a series of very extensive translation notes. So you're kind of wondering, what's going on? Why did they make that choice? Usually you can look at their notes, and they'll have a little bit of an explanation of that. That's, that's one of the really valuable things about it. You, know, you, you, you don't have to guess about why they went a certain way. But yeah, it's a product of those who were producing the translation. Mainly professors at Dallas uh, are the people who are responsible for the Net Bible. They got a wealthy Dallas businessman to cough up some money, and uh, so they used it to produce this Bible. All right, let's, let's begin to look at the passage, and first of all, put it in a context here. This is a transitional text. If you look at different commentaries on Romans, uh, Romans, on Galatians, you'll find them putting this paragraph in different places. Some make it the end of the first section. So they kind of put a key dividing line between 2.21 and 3.1. Other commentators put a key dividing line between 2.14 and 2.15. Uh, and see 2.15 and following introduce the next section following. What might be the arguments both ways here? What do you see in the flow of the passage that would make sense to put it with what precedes or with what follows? I did did want to make note. It's interesting that the footnote here that says a lot of folks finished their quotation at the end of verse 14. Yeah. Kind of like that's, that's what was said to Peter and then everything else was just Paul writing. That's right. Yeah, so you, you probably have, if, again, this is another thing you probably don't notice as much. If you have a red letter edition of the Gospels, you notice it a lot. <laughs> and I say that because we got in a lot of trouble in the NIV update with red letter editions, which you should never use, by the way. Ban them, ignore them refuse to buy them, don't even patronize a store that sells red-letter versions of the Bible, or just these terrible things that people like for some reason. But, you know, giving the impression the words Jesus said are somehow more important than any other words. We got in big trouble because following most of the recent commentators on John, 
we put the quotation mark in John 3 at the end of verse 15. So suddenly John 3.16 is in black rather than red. Oh, NIV translators don't like John 3.16. They're anti-evangelism. They don't like the verse. But sometimes we don't notice the quotation marks. But if you look at your Bibles here, you obviously have a quotation mark that begins in the middle of verse 14. I think all of us will have that. I said to Cephas in front of them all, quote, okay? Now, the problem in the Greek text is where to end the quotation because there are no punctuation marks in the Greek, as most of you know. Usually you can tell where a quotation begins because you have a formula like you have here, you know, said to somebody, quote. Uh, But where does it end? There's no mark in the Greek to tell us where it ends. So the NIV takes the quotation all the way through verse 21. But other versions put the quotation ending at the end of verse 14. Uh, And some, I think, at 17 or 18 even. That, again, is a a judgment call the translations have to make because there's nothing in the Greek that formally tells us where to do that. Now, you can understand why the NIV continues the quotation here because you have Paul speaking to Cephas and Antioch. Okay, and remember he's telling the Galatians, here's what I said to Peter. You are Jew, yet you live not like a Jew. How is it then you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles? You can see how that flows on pretty naturally with the idea we, that is Peter, you and I, who are Jews by birth. And then you can continue the quotation right on to the end. And obviously that then becomes an argument for putting a key dividing line at the end of verse 21. If the quotation follows from verse 14, you know, there's a continuity there you want to respect. Paul is still telling us in this whole text what he said to Peter at Antioch, and that all should be kept together, obviously. Make sense? Okay, what's the argument the other way? why would a number of the uh, commentators put a break between 14 and 15? He would make this one burst, and then, then he would come back and say, now this is why I said this. Mm-hmm. So there'd be a transition between 14 and 15, as Paul now is more or less addressing the Galatians and talking to them a little bit more about why things happened the way they did and what the issues were. Yeah. But by continuing the the quotations, he's giving a discourse right in Peter's face. Mm -hmm. He is, but but he's recording it so the Galatians can hear it. And and he wants, obviously, them to hear what he said. And uh, we could assume, I think, that this is a summary of what he said. It's not a verbatim record of the exact words that Paul used when he confronted Peter and Antioch. Undoubtedly, he said a lot more than this at greater length, but sort of here's a synopsis of what I said. Yeah, Wesley? It seems to me, I'm looking at verse 17, like the rhetorical questions and all, it doesn't seem like natural uh, dialogue or the way you confront someone. It it seems like more detailed elaboration, more well-developed. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. The, that kind of uh, rhetorical question uh, format that you have in 17 and following, 
looks to be something that would work a little bit better if Paul is thinking of the Galatians and writing that rather than a record of what he actually said to Peter. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and then and at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, you foolish Galatians. Yeah. So someone's like, this is what I said to Peter. Here's the truth. Now I'm going to tell it to you all, uh-huh. you know, specifically addressing it their way. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to put the, 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 the matter. You have the, you know, the issue in Antioch and what Paul, what Paul said. Then you have Paul kind of elaborating on the theology that comes out of that. And then you have him applying it, you know, very directly. 3.1, you see the address there as Paul turns to the Galatians very, very clearly. The, the, the other issue to consider here is that Paul now introduces the, the language of justify, law. These are going to be key words that, that occur throughout the rest of Galatians. And again, so you could understand those who say 2.15 to 21 is the introductory paragraph in this great central theological argument of the letter. Ultimately, you know, these kinds of questions are often best answered with uh, neither, nor, or both and. I've talked about this with you before, I think, because I've been here the last couple of years or so, so some of you are tired of hearing it, but some of you get to hear me for the first time, trot out my pet peeves. The um, tendency for us when we're trying to outline biblical books, you know, to follow Roman numerals, letters, you know how we do that, the typical style, often imposes a kind of artificial structure on a text. You know, just just think of some of the writing you do sometimes and, and go back and say, now, how, how could I outline that thing I've just written? And does this sentence belong with what precedes or what follows? And often we're going to say, well, it's sort of both. It, it, it continues what I've said before, but it's also moving now a little bit more into what I'm going to say later on. Uh, so a lot of passages of Scripture don't, can't simply be categorized in one place or another. And this is a transitional paragraph. Uh, it's both wrapping up the first part of the letter and beginning to introduce the second part of the letter at the same time, I think. Some of you will... Uh, I hope take advantage of a couple of the Bibles now available. The NIV has been out for a while in it, and the ESV has just published a version which removes all chapter numbers, verse numbers, and headings. And I think it it gives you kind of a fresh way of reading the Bible. A number of churches I know, the folks at Biblica that sponsor the NIV, have put together a church-based reading program where the whole church together reads the whole New Testament in 90 days in that kind of a format as just a way of getting people a little bit more into the Bible, engaging with Scripture in a fresh way. And and so you you read a letter like Galatians as Paul originally wrote it, in a sense. He didn't write numbers. He didn't have chapters. He didn't have headings in there like our Bibles do. And we need those headings, and we need the numbers to figure out where we are. You know, how else are you going to tell people in church now turn to Jeremiah 33.9. You know, if you've got to say now, find that place in Jeremiah where he talks about, you know, without the numbers. Just imagine how that would go. But as a fresh way of reading the Bible, I think that there's a lot to be said for trying that, for, for seeing that as a kind of an, an option. A lot of people are saying, oh, there's a, there's a freshness now to reading this. I mean, these are actual letters somebody wrote. These aren't just books of a Bible with all the paraphernalia of a Bible, you know, the numbers and verses and and all of that stuff. So I think there's mileage to be gained, as it were, from that kind of an approach. 
Now, let's take a look at what's, what's going on here. Um, first of all, we should note in verse 15 how Paul is putting the matter in the context of, uh, you know, we Jews by birth know something. We are not sinful Gentiles. And that translation is a little bit problematic, perhaps. Here's a vote I lost. So I like to tell folks, if there are things in the updated NIV you don't like, those are votes I lost. I'm I'm always with you, uh, supportive of whatever you want to say. The problem is sinful Gentiles can sound as if Paul is talking about a class of particularly sinful Gentiles. Whereas I think it's pretty clear his intention is to talk about all Gentiles, as from a Jewish standpoint, by definition, sinful. So there are other renderings, I think, that get that a little bit better than the NIV does here, to be honest. So it's we Jews, you know, this is, of course, this is the way Paul and the Jewish people in general looked at humanity. That was the key dividing line. You've got the people of Israel, Jews on the one hand, who are uh, the biological seed of Abraham, heirs to the, the promises automatically belonging to the covenant of God because they were born as Jews. And then you have the Gentiles, uh, everybody else. That's the, the obvious dividing line that was key for the Jews in the first century era. And of course, is rooted in the Old Testament itself, uh, where you have God entering into this particular relationship with the one people, Israel. So that's what is being reflected here. And obviously, it's relevant to the situation in Galatia. What is the standing of these Galatian Gentiles who have now come into faith in Jesus as Messiah? What is their status? Do they belong? On what basis do they belong? How do we integrate them? It's this Jewish-Gentile divide that's so fundamental in Galatians. Just an overview of the paragraph then, verses 15 to 16, which was basically one sentence in the Greek. That's why when I think David read from the net, he decided he needed to go back to verse 15 because really they belong together as one sentence. Uh, Introducing this key idea of justification by faith, something we'll be talking about this afternoon as well. And then implications of that. If this is true, as it were, Paul is saying, how about the law? And sin, well, what, what, what role do they play now? Being crucified with Christ, this famous text, which is a little bit of a parenthesis in some ways, but significant in other ways. And then the return to the issue of righteousness or justification in verse 21. In all of this, verse 16 is a really important verse. We're going to kind of want to just land here a bit because it is a really uh, important text that introduces some key words. Wesley. After transitioning to yeah. 16, the sinful Gentiles... Uh, the, the, the what? The sinful Well, sinful, yes, yeah. Um, is, I assume Paul, at, by this point, had stopped using that kind of language since he was the apostle to the Gentiles. So he's borrowing the language of the Jews, the language of the Judaizers. So is he using that phrase almost sarcastically 
or is he using it in a, in a legal sense, especially since, you know, verse 16, he's starting to use legal language of justify. We'll talk that about that a little more because this language of sin comes back into play here in verse uh, 17. And so it's kind of related to that. But just to answer the question for now, it seems to me in verse 15, Paul is writing from the standpoint of his fellow Jews, deliberately adopting the usual terminology that was typical in his Jewish context and environment. Clearly, Paul doesn't think all Gentiles are sinners in the same way. But he does, I think, continue to recognize that Gentiles with respect to the traditional language of the covenant, do have a different status. And if you're looking at it from that standpoint, then yeah, that language is still appropriate. So here's verse 16. You can see, first of all, the verb justify three times. So that's introduced here as a key idea. We're going to bypass a lot of discussion of that for now and come back to that this afternoon when we're going to look at justification as a theological topic a little bit more broadly. But as we will see, this word does occur significant times in Galatians, and here's the the first time. The second thing to note, which I've highlighted obviously with, with, with the font here, is the contrast of works of the law three times and the language of faith or believing. You have the verb, we have believed in Christ Jesus, here in the middle. But then you also have a phrase that I've rendered somewhat literally, Jesus Christ faith or Christ faith, which I think, as I will explain in a moment, is a good starting point in understanding this particular phrase and seeing what some of the options for its meaning might be. We notice the difference in the translations here. Some faith in Jesus Christ, that would be most of the versions, I think, but a couple of them rendering the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And this does reflect a legitimate option in the Greek text here. Let's look at works of the law first. Uh, This is a very interesting phrase which Paul contrasts with faith eight times. You see the texts here in Galatians, but also you have texts uh, in Romans as well. So this works of the law versus faith contrast comes also in 3.2, 3.5, 3.10, 3.11. Also you get it in Romans 3.20 and 3.28. Now, what does the phrase works of the law mean? And how does it idea in terms of its contrast with faith work? Well, let me go to this chart first here. The usual way of understanding this phrase in the past, certainly, has been the second option here. That is to view works of the law as the NIV translated originally, observing the law. Works of the law is a way of talking about the human need to do or to obey God's law, the Torah. And again, we talked about this 
yesterday, it's, it, it is worth just reminding ourselves that when we have the word law here in English, uh, that's a fine translation, but sometimes using Torah, the transliterated uh, Hebrew word, just serves to remind us that Paul is talking here very specifically about the Jewish law, the law of Moses, the law God gave his people Israel. It's a very distinct focus, uh, which is obvious in Galatians on that. So uh, on the usual understanding, the phrase works of the law talks about human doing of the law in a very broad and general sense. And the key point then, the really key issue here theologically and in terms of the way you preach Galatians, to pick up something we talked about yesterday morning, the really key point is that on the basis of this way of construing the phrase, we can move from works of the law to the broader category of works. This is, again, the traditional Reformation approach. So if you are preaching Galatians 2.16 then, uh, you are probably going to be preaching it to Gentiles. There might be very few Jews in your congregation very few Gentiles who are being tempted to put themselves under the law of Moses. Probably very few of the people you ever preach to are going to be tempted to be circumcised and start obeying the Jewish food laws and observing Passover and so forth. Very rarely will you have people like that you're preaching to, but you will almost always have people who think that they can get right with God by what they do, who are bringing their own works into their uh, status with God, who think that I don't need all this Christianity business because, you know, I'm a good person. At least I'm a better person than most of my neighbors are. At least I'm a better person than the axe murderer who just got sentenced to death. So uh, I'm doing okay. You know, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm doing good works and that's going to be adequate for me. When you're addressing those kinds of people, on the basis of this second interpretation, this text applies, you see. Paul's talking about a particular form of works. He's addressing Galatian Gentile Christians who are being tempted to adopt the law and saying to them, remember, justification isn't based on your doing of the Torah, Implication, however, justification is not based on any kind of doing. And that's the the broader point we'll be wanting to preach. If you look at Calvin and Luther and the other reformers and most interpreters since their day, that's the point that would be made from Galatians 2.16. So to use the uh, uh, terminology we used yesterday, this second view is certainly one that would Uh, fall under the category of homiletical expediency. I like this view because I think it's going to preach to my congregation. I I, I like this interpretation of the text because uh, I can can make a better sermon out of it without quite as much thinking and struggle as I might have to go through if there's something else going on here. Uh, Again, you've got the historical particularity. Paul, a Jew 
talking to uh, Gentiles, tempted to become Jews, as it were, and take on the law of Moses. A historical particularity here that is rarely going to match our ministry here. Moving from one to the other, again, validly is the issue that we preachers have to be confronting all the time. And if the second view is right, that move is going to be a lot easier. Beginning particularly with the new perspective, although this view has been out there in scattered places for centuries, but beginning particularly with the new perspective, uh, a different emphasis has been seen in this phrase. And you can understand why the new perspective would want to find a different emphasis here. Remember our discussion yesterday afternoon. New perspective is following in the wake of E.P. Sanders' view of Judaism. Judaism was not a religion, according to Sanders, according to which Jews were thinking that they needed to do the law to be saved or justified. If Sanders is right, then who is Paul talking about here with his negative statement? When Paul says, a person is not justified by works of the law, no person is justified by works of the law, no flesh will be justified by works of the law, it seems that he is talking about somebody who is arguing that point, right? It seems like the only reason for him to emphasize that so much is to counteract someone who's saying, in effect, we are justified by works of the law. But if Sanders is right, there's no one who's saying that. If Sanders is right, that's not what Jews were thinking. That's, that was not their belief. And so that leads to, again, the new perspective working out of Sanders' view of Judaism, Dunn and Wright and others to have to say, we need to figure out a different meaning for this phrase. We've got to figure out what Paul's really doing, how we can understand this text to be engaging with the Judaism we now know to be the case. So you see the relationship there, I think. Right. I mean, I guess the other argument would be that he's specifically addressing Peter here. Sure. This whole argument is just, this, this is Peter's mistake. And I think he still is. Yeah, I, th- I, think that's, that's, I think that's probably true. Yes, yeah. Now, in order to kind of explain how Paul might be attacking the Judaism of his day, people like, like James Dunn, who was the first to, to really uh, emphasize this point, and he's the one who's done the, the clearest and uh, most extensive writing on the issue of works of the law. A uh, series of articles, probably 15 or 20 different articles at least since the early 1980s. You've seen it, some of you, in his commentary on Galatians, his Pauline theology, a lot of places you're going to see it pop up. Dunn says, if you look at the way this phrase is being used in Paul's climate, the focus was not so much on the doing of the law, the focus was more on the law itself. And an important point in Galatians to note, in Galatians at least, Paul never contrasts works and faith. Always the contrast is law and faith. So in Romans, yes, you do have Paul contrasting works and faith several times, Romans 4, Romans 9, Romans 11, but in Galatians, it's always the law. The argument then is that works of the law is not just a way of talking about a subset of works. It's talking about a different thing. It's talking about 
Torah faithfulness. It's talking about uh, observance of God's law. It's talking about uh, doing the law in order to validate one's special place in God's chosen people, the Jews. In effect, what Paul would be saying here in Galatians 2.16 is no person now that Christ has come is put right with God in terms of the old covenant. The old covenant with its requirement for Torah obedience is no longer the context in which righteousness or justification is found. No longer does our standing with God relate to works of the law in terms of these badges of covenant membership, which is the language Dunn likes to use here, badges of covenant membership. Let me just pause to see if you if you've got that, it's, just, it's often kind of a new idea and hard to process at first, I think. This is the way Dunn and others would think, well, now Paul can then be seen to be responding effectively to first century Judaism as Sanders describes it. Because the, uh, the matter here is the Jewish assumption that God's covenant with the Jewish people is sort of eternal is, is the arrangement that always is going to exist to mark out the people of God. And so the Judaizers are naturally saying that continues. And so that's the context in which anybody has to uh, be marked out as a people of God. They have to you know, agree to circumcision and doing the law because that arrangement that focuses on the law continues. And that, that, again, would make sense, it's argued, in the first century Jewish context. McKnight, Dunn, both take basically this line. Leslie. So Dunn basically followed Sanders in saying that the overwhelming Jewish attitude was kind of the Christian attitude of today, that they were saved by grace. Yeah, saved by the special grace of God and the covenant with them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, as, as we said yesterday, I don't think it's, accurate to categorize E.P. Sanders as a new perspective advocate. But his view of Judaism was picked up by new perspective advocates, assumed or argued, and that was the, the starting place for this development of what I think is more appropriately called the new perspective. On that view of works of the law then, the point is you have two separate circles And you cannot validly move from here to here. And so new perspective advocates, and I could, you know, enumerate a number. I refer to a number of them in the commentary. will all say much the same thing. Paul, when he's talking about works of the law, has nothing to do with the traditional idea of good works. Uh, Nothing to do. Rather, works of the law is a very concrete, specific phenomenon tied to these Jewish convictions about Torah and covenant. And if that's true, then preaching Galatians 2.16 becomes a lot harder. Because what Paul is attacking is not sort of legalism or works righteousness in general. What he's attacking only is the specific claim that one is justified in terms of the old Mosaic covenant. 
And again, the problem is you don't have a lot of people probably like that in your congregations. So you have to work harder at application. Now, let me say this very strongly, if I can. The question about whether a text is more easily applied or easily preached has nothing to do with deciding what it means. And too often we let that have a strong effect on the way we read the Bible. Again, homiletical expediency for those, and I'm speaking to you now because it's not applicable to me so much. I can, I can teach a class at Wheaton Graduate School and talk up here in the academic rarefied atmosphere and never come down here. And my students will be saying, oh boy, that was really fun to talk about these academic issues. Well, if your congregation on a Sunday morning leaves saying, oh, that was an interesting theoretical discussion, but I have no idea what in the world all that has to do with me or who I am or the way I live, you're in trouble as a preacher. The preacher has a lot harder job than we professors have. We professors can sometimes just stay up there in the rarefied realm of academic discussion and sort of follow the old Toast, I don't know if you've ever heard this one. Here's to pure mathematics. May it never be of any help to anybody. That kind of attitude toward, you know, people who are really interested in the theory of things and don't care about the practice. Now, obviously, at a place like Wheaton, an evangelical institution, we're, we're always concerned that the scripture speak to our students. So don't, don't get me wrong about that. But nevertheless, it's still the case that you preaching having to, to, to kind of communicate a word to people that is a word of God to them and for them and relevant to them really have to struggle at times at this point. And I, I do fear that we let homiletical expediency take charge too often. We're busy. We don't have time to think the whole thing through. If we find an interpretation in a commentary that we think is going to preach really well, to meet the needs of our congregation, let's go with it. I understand the pressure is there, but I guess just from a theoretical standpoint, I think that's one of the things a demon program should do uh, is to sort of help us as preachers even kind of make sure we are continuing to base the preaching we're doing on careful and solid interpretation of the word. And uh, that's why some of you are in a demon program, I suspect, in contrast to others who might not care about this level of work. Uh, your, your, your concern to validly be preaching what's, what's in the text. And so just, again, uh, encouragement to, you know, to do the homework, do, do the work, think through these issues, even if it's a little bit harder at times. Yeah, Rod. Uh, along those lines, then, when we are preaching this text, to our congregations in this day and time. Does, does this apply then more, not so much to justification as does sanctification? Say so that they must do works or work mm-hmm. in order to maintain their relationship with God and continue to be saved. We're going to talk about that. So could, could, could we just put that on hold for now? Uh, a little bit this afternoon and then again uh, tomorrow afternoon. Uh, so it's a good, valid question here, but uh, I, I think we're going to be able to, to talk about that a little more later, later on. 
Yeah. Can they, can they actually point to Judaistic texts that say works of the law, i.e., ceremonial? I mean, or is this just speculation? Yeah. I mean, it's highly reductionistic. Yeah. Two points. First of all, the idea that works law refers to the ceremonial law is a view you have out there in the history of the church. Pelagius argued that view. I'm trying to remember some of the other people along the way. Calvin and his institutes attacks people who hold that view. I'm trying to remember who those people were now. I'm not coming up with this. So again, periodically over church history, you have had people arguing that it means the ceremonial law. Now that's not quite what Dunn and Wright, the new perspective people, are arguing, however. They aren't necessarily confining the phrase to ceremonial law. They see it again as a sort of simple catchphrase to talk about the mentality of first century Jews who think that their doing of the law is important to validate their position and keep the Gentiles out. To answer the the, the question then, the phrase itself is very rare in whatever language. The, the main debate in recent years has been over a document called 4QMMT. I got one too many humps on my camel here. 4QMMT. Uh, so, you know, if you want to really impress your congregation on Sunday, just start citing stuff like this. 4QMMT is a document in the Dead Sea Scrolls where the phrase does occur and people like Don and Wright think that the use of it there does validate their view, but others disagree. You know, these kinds of arguments, it's like a Russian dolls, you know, you just argument after argument after argument after argument. Um, so the phrase is pretty rare, and I think, I think people would acknowledge it's not clear-cut anywhere. I, I don't follow the new perspective view here myself at the end of the day, but... I do want us to acknowledge the validity of what they're trying to do. In other words, they're trying to read what Paul is saying here in what is their understanding of the first century context of discussion. Dunn and Wright will often say things like, we are so used to reading this language in a certain way because of the way the reformers understood it. We can't even think outside the box. We're just, we, we've got like tunnel vision here. The whole context of the discussion has been so formed by the way we have been brought up to read the language a certain way, we can't even see outside of it. But they would argue if you really immerse yourself in the first century Jewish world and see what's going on there and hear the way they're using their language, then this other view would make a lot more sense and fits the historical circumstances. That's a valid argument. It's a valid method they're following. And I think we have to acknowledge that and see why they're doing what they're doing. They're not just trying to bash the Reformation, although it comes out that way occasionally. They're trying to understand Paul faithfully in his context of first century Judaism, as they understand it. So again, I don't think they're finally right about it. But I do respect what they're trying to do, even though I disagree. In contrast, you know, to some who just dismiss Don and write in the new perspective as a kind of a heretical thing or as uh, a clearly aberrant uh, view of Christianity or Paul. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair to what they're, they're doing. Uh, and I don't think it's uh, fair to some of the evidence they can marshal for their view as well. 
Again, Dunn would say, look at Galatians. When Paul talks about this phrase, he always picks up not works, but the law. That shows that for him, the key contrast here is not with the works, but with the law. Because that's how he abbreviates it. <laughs> he talks about the law, never about works in a general way in, in, in Galatians. And that, he makes a point. It's a valid point. A very debated phrase. Some of this will depend on our view of first century Judaism, which we talked about yesterday. If we don't think Sanders has it quite right, if Sanders' view of Judaism is not the end of the story and the definitive way to view it, then there are other options. We don't have the same pressure that you you see being felt by people like Dunn and Wright at that point. While Galatians is different than Romans, and having written on Romans before I wrote on Galatians, I can sometimes be accused of reading my work on Romans into Galatians. You know, that's Obviously, we have to be careful about doing that. We have to respect each letter written in different contexts for different purposes. We have to respect each letter for itself on the one hand. On the other hand, however, it's certainly fair to say it's likely whatever Paul meant by works of the law in Romans is what he means by it in Galatians as well. Brief parenthesis here on method. You remember that yesterday morning I emphasized the 10-year period between Paul's first coming to Jerusalem and his second visit to Jerusalem. And that becomes important in this way. If Galatians is the first letter Paul wrote, as I suspect it is, let's date it in 48, I suspect he was converted around 33. Now, the important point here then is that when Paul writes Galatians, he has been preaching the gospel studying scriptures, understanding Christ in relationship to scriptures for 15 years. The first letter he wrote, but he's not writing it as a theological novice. He's not writing it, you know, fresh out of seminary, as it were. He's been 15 years in ministry, and then probably between Galatians and Romans, another nine years go by. Romans is 57, as I suspect it is. The point I would make is that by the time Paul writes Galatians, he's had plenty of time to kind of develop his theology and the vocabulary he wants to use to communicate it. And so I think there is some value to saying this phrase works for the law, six times in Galatians, twice in Romans, probably means the same thing in both letters. It's unlikely Paul would have shifted the meaning of it since he's using the same vocabulary, same kinds of arguments, and so on. And in Romans, at least, Paul does consistently talk about works in relationship to works of the law. And to me, that's kind of ultimately the most important argument here that justifies, in my view, the second way to think about this. Can you you think about, though, works of the law generically? That's what you want, right? Generically, and then there are specifics. Again, the diagram there at the bottom is the one I, I like to think about. That. I asked you a long time ago when I asked him where I wronged during a break. And you agreed with me, so don't hit me too hard. Unless you have a tape recording, I'm not, uh, I'm not, necessarily, I'm not necessarily going to acknowledge what, what I... I'm quoting you on this, so I asked you if, probably, historically speaking, it would be beneficial 
to use the phrase religious performance for works of the law. And you said, yeah. Yeah, I think it, I think it does help. Yeah, I think it does help. Yeah. Because you, to me, you have nothing to preach from Galatians if it's just ceremonial stuff or if it's just circumcision, blah, blah, blah. There's nothing there. But if you start talking about justification via religious performance, mm -hmm. that, yeah. you've got something that you can see. The benefit of that phrase, religious performance, is that it then automatically would include things like baptism, for instance. Lord's Supper, Mass, which works might not always convey to people immediately. And clearly, in the situation in Galatia, it's not simply a matter of Paul talking about you Galatians don't need to do works to be justified. It's you Galatians don't need to put yourself under the law of Moses via circumcision. Is circumcision a work? Well, some sense, I suppose, something we have done to us or something. But again, religious performance uh, is a phrase that can help to kind of bridge the gap between those two, I think. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, Jim? Can you help me understand what... Um, I'm very sensitive to your suggestion that we don't need to be involved in the homiletical expediency. Uh, but on the other hand, kind of piggybacking off what David was just saying, can you give me an example of what somebody who's holding the new perspective, how would they apply this? Generally, their application has to do with the emphasis on inclusiveness. In other words, uh, if Paul is uh, criticizing Jewish Christians of some sort for failing to recognize that in this new era, the work of God in Christ opens the door for everybody to be brought in on the same basis without going through the the door of the Jewish law. If that's what Paul is really about, then there is a message of inclusiveness that comes out of this. In the era of the gospel, God opens the doors to everybody. And so they would argue that, that far from handicapping our application, it helps us to apply to the pressing need to preach the gospel to everybody, to invite everybody in on the same basis, and to recognize that the kind of separation that Peter is working with, we Jews, Gentile, sinners, is no longer in place for any group, any ethnicity, any nationality. That would be the, the kind of ultimate application that they would take out of it then. Some way, so the new perspective, if I'm going to pull it all the way down on this phrase, would be that the Jews are guilty. They're guilty of something, Right. And that they're guilty of not legalism, but feeling safe in their identity as the covenant people. And keeping the Gentiles out. Yeah. And keeping the Gentiles out. So there is an application, and, and maybe, like we talked about yesterday, we could bring in a little bit of the new perspective with the old. And the application is against legalists, but also against, especially in the American South, those who have been born into a Christian family, raised in the church, don't be comfortable in that, don't feel safe in that, right. because that won't save you. Yeah, yeah. And this is, again, where religious performance is a, is a phrase that kind of helps to, to move toward that standpoint. It does include both. It does, yeah. And again, if, if you read Wright, especially Wright on text, I guess, he won't deny the legitimacy of the application of the works idea. 
he will say, yeah, of course, of course that's true, but that's not what Paul's getting at here. And what, what he just said, Wesley just said, that would make this very appreciable. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. You, know, you take that, you take that yeah. perspective, now you've got a whole new perspective of your quote-unquote team in, which I love that phrase, as to where now, as a minister who is taking this as a DMN, not as a PhD, mm-hmm. I, I can still take the PhD and apply it to the DMN. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. Nice scholarly wisdom that it took one last phrase from a, a Southern Redneck to make sure you get the details there. You're able now to present that in full. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of religious performance or ritual, again, that's very much involved here. And, and so there's an application to works in general, yes, but, but religious performance, ritual, you know, I'm familiar with people who say, well, I was saved when I walked up the aisle of the Billy Graham crusade. There's a religious ritual by which I'm saved. <laughs> or I was baptized in my church. You know, I grew up in the Lutheran church. I was baptized as an infant and confirmed. And I know a lot of my friends still in the Lutheran church would say, that did it. I remember when I came home and, tell, and told my dad, I came to Christ in my last year of university, and came home and said, Dad, I became a Christian. And he shot back, you became a Christian when you were confirmed. We, we all know how widespread that mentality is, and Galatians 2.16 is hitting right at that. But the other thing, too, though, is that if Galatians is about maintaining your salvation, or not trying to, then religious performance, I, that, I think that's the single greatest problem that I've seen in the local church, in my church, and various others, is that people think that if they don't maintain a certain level of performance, mm-hmm. they are going to forfeit their salvation and they're out. And I'm not talking, obviously we're talking about non-Calvinist types, but there are others who will say, okay, well, you won't lose your salvation, but your, your status in Christ is elevated considerably by your religious performance. And what Paul has to say clearly is there is no justification, there is no acceptance, even greater acceptance of God or whatever through your religious performance as far as your initial salvation is concerned, or you're maintaining your position in Christ. And that's a very powerful and needy message that needs to be gotten out, because once I, I had a, a, a woman who had been a Christian for years who was trying to maintain her salvation by religious performance, and I, we went to Galatians, and she looked at me one day and she goes, you mean I'm saved? <laughs> she, you mean I'm, I'm really saved? And I said, and she says, I can know I am? And I said, yes. And she says, I don't have to worry? And I said, no, you don't. It was like a big aha moment. Yeah. It changed your whole life. And I, I, David, we're going to talk about this more tomorrow, but just to comment briefly here. I agree with you, except I would just want to say there's a fine balance we need here too. Because I think Paul does ultimately say our works are pretty important. That if we are in Christ and the Spirit is operating in our lives, the works need to be there. And those aren't unimportant. They are not going to be unimportant on the day of judgment either. So, you know, the old saying, you comfort the afflicted and you afflict the comfortable. (laughs) I think we need to have both sides in our repertoire as preachers of the gospel. A lot of people are anxious about their status. We need to comfort them by reminding them, hey, it's grace. Your status in Christ depends on what God has done for you and continues to do for you. But there are a lot of folks who are way too comfortable in their Christian life, who are looking back and saying, eh, I believe, I've got faith, don't bother me with, you know, obedience. And there we may need to afflict the comfortable a little bit. 
No, I, no, it's not. I think it's still a justification issue myself. But, oh, really? Yeah. More on that tomorrow. See. <laughs> Can we make the distinction between obedience and performance? That we're going to obey God and then not rebel, not just turn again, but we may do it very poorly. And so we're not based on performance, but the heart needs to be an obedient heart. Is that a valid distinction? That uh, are you thinking about the obedience more in terms of a disposition or attitude? And, and, and intention. Uh-huh. I've used the example of a child getting a glass of milk. And he may pour it and drop it and make a huge mess. He's obeyed. He just hasn't performed. I think there's some truth to that, although I think ultimately Scripture does talk about performance as well as important. Not just the intention or the disposition, but actual, concrete evidences of the Spirit that are to some extent performance-related too. Jason and then Rob. Yeah, I think as I'm just listening to everybody, one of the things that's connected for me is uh, maybe a principle is it seems like the end result of a life built on a system of law when related to God mm-hmm. ends in this separation of people. And in this case, in the story, it's the Jewish law separated Jews and Gentiles, but in my world, it's some other system of law that any time in my church, the center of the relationship with God is based on some kind of system of law. Uh-huh. It always ends with people, with the, with the church, divided, divided yeah. by the system of law. We are in and you are out. Exactly. You don't measure up. Yeah. I'm better. I mean, all the pride, all the boasting, everything you see in there, even though it's a different system, they created their own system. I think that's a great point. Yeah. And to me, that, I'm just connecting. I, I see that it yeah. ends at the same place, and that, mm-hmm. that's still relevant. It sure is. I, and I think you're right. And Paul, you know, interesting, does frequently criticize boasting in precisely these kinds of contexts, uh, pride. We all tend to set up those barriers. Uh, you know, I do these things so I'm in and I'm better than you. That's fundamental human tendency, and we bring that into our church relationships, and you end up, like you say, with the divisions then. Yeah, yeah, we're the, we're the faithful few, righteous remnant, and we're, we're going to form our own church of five folks, you know, and then those five folks start quarreling, and so you get two of them who say, oh, we're the only righteous remnant, faithful ones left, so we're going to establish our church of two, you know, until you end up with isolated Christians all over the map. So Paul Dunn, he, I guess, as I'm thinking about it, he's saying it's faith in Christ, that's the theological foundation yeah. that enables... In response to the grace of God. Right. So we're all ultimately beggars, we're all ultimately needy, and none of us has anything to boast about, any pride... And once we begin to realize that, then we're going to be a lot more accepting to a lot more people. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Rob. Yes, sir. I'm just curious. Uh, you speak about balance and, and avoiding both extremes. Uh, Most of the time. Not all the time. Most of the time. I speak of that a lot myself. And I'm thinking of, uh, for instance, baptism in the world. So I'm coming from my tradition, Southern Baptist tradition, where I have actually heard people in my congregations uh, you know, speak of baptism and word supper uh, it's just a ritual uh, empty ritual I've, I've actually had someone tell me that I don't care if people get baptized or not we're saved by grace and then and then, what is the word supper is it really that important even though they might even say uh, in principle it's it's important because the Lord commanded us to do it 
I, I have people in my church that haven't partaken the Lord's Supper in over a year. In, in practice, it doesn't mean anything. And so, at the risk of sounding like the Judaizer who's going to I want to bring this up and say, uh, on one hand, as a Baptist, I do not believe that uh, in baptismal regeneration or that you must partake the Lord's Supper to be saved. But if you see these as not important at all, you don't see the importance of fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters. Your name's on the road. You've been baptized as a child, so therefore you're in. But there doesn't seem to be any uh, any desire whatsoever to really fellowship with God's people, worship with God's people, partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, where does that come into play? How do we avoid legalism sounding legalistic and yet hold these up as yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly how we do that. I and mean, I agree that uh, when we talk about the danger of religious performance, it's not a matter of turning our backs on all forms of religious performance. It's just trying to re remember that these are not the fundamental basis on which we are accepted before God. Um, but that you're, you're right. I mean, uh, I, I'm familiar with a, a lot of broadly brand X evangelical churches where there's been a, a kind of a reaction, again, in my context and partly because of my own history, a reaction against the state churches of certain countries in Europe where baptism, confirmation, participation in the Lord's Supper, however described, are pretty vital uh, for uh, life in Christ. Uh, and a lot of us evangelicals, you know, see that thing, oh, that's, that, that, there's been so much emphasis there, it le it's led to a, a failure to engage personally with Christ. Ritual has replaced relationship. And so we've pushed against that and probably too far at times. I mean, I, I, I'm familiar with churches as well where uh, yeah, we baptize people. We have no idea why we're doing it, or what it accomplishes, but we're told to do it, so here we go. Um, and I do think that as evangelicals in a variety of different contexts, we need to develop a, a authentically biblical and more robust theology of baptism and the Supper of the Lord so that we help people understand why these are not the basis for salvation or even maybe necessary for salvation, but they are um, important ways that God has ordained for the community of Christ to be formed and to be reminded of uh, God's work of grace. It's not the religious performance, it's the problem, it's the motive. Yeah. And that's the thing. That... Why you're doing it, yeah. yeah. And that's the issue in Galatians as well. I mean, Paul, you know... Granted, what Paul says about circumcision here, why in the world would he circumcise Timothy? Acts 16. And, oh, Paul, you're inconsistent. You don't have a theology worked out here. You're just doing whatever is convenient or easy or, or something. And Paul's response, obviously, well, the circumstances are different. I didn't circumcise Timothy because he needed to be circumcised to be saved or to be part of the people of God, but for other reasons. Let me turn to the other part of the uh, text now for a moment. The contrast of works of the law is the language of faith or believing. And Paul, again, as I pointed out earlier, uses both the verb, 
here in the middle of the verse, and then the noun form here. So the verb is, is clear enough, but it's believing in or in the context of Christ. But the, the noun phrase is, is much more debated. Those of you who have Greek will know that this is one of these genitive constructions that are often so hard to pin down. And again, a kind of a good start in English when you see one of these genitive expressions is a noun phrase. And hence, I've used the double noun construction, Jesus Christ faith or Christ faith. I think that's a, a good starting point in English to kind of represent the ambiguity of the construction here. And the question is the obvious one. When we're talking about Christ faith, let's say, is that faith that Christ himself is exercising? Or faithfulness would, is also a way to translate the same Greek noun. This is what the Net Bible does here, the faithfulness of Christ, or is the faith being directed toward Christ? Hence the usual English translation of faith in Christ. Now again, this phrase, you get the same kind of construction a number of times in Paul. I've given the references here. Very much debated in recent years. There was a monograph, in fact, a whole book of essays published just two or three years ago on just this issue. The author's taking a variety of viewpoints and uh, arguing from different standpoints and different evidence and so on. It's quite de de debated, but you have, again, the these, these places where you have the noun pistis, which is the, the noun we translate either faith or faithfulness, again, English equivalent, faith or faithfulness, plus a reference to Jesus in the Greek genitive case. Okay, so again, those of you, I know a lot of you don't, don't have Greek, that's fine, this course does not require Greek. I don't want to get too technical on you, but some of you do, and just try to explain the kind of the situation as best I can, what's going on in the Greek via the English, if, you, if that makes sense. The usual view here, which is represented in most of our English versions, is that these phrases talk about human believing in Christ. It's faith directed toward him as our object. The traditional view, Luther, Calvin, and note, James Dunn, one of the new perspective advocates, very strong advocate of this view also. The view that has grown very popular in recent years is that rather the phrase refers to the faith or faithfulness of Christ. And again, you see that in the Net Bible, the CEB has that, the NIV has that as a footnote here, recognizing you know, this is a quite legitimate option. Now, the first thing I want to say is this. This particular view goes back in time quite a long time. A man named Robinson, an Australian, argued it in the 50s. My own teacher, Richard Longenecker, was a strong advocate of this view. What I want to disabuse you is any idea that this is somehow a distinctly new perspective view. Dunn and Wright, the two key figures in the new perspective, disagree on this, so it's clearly not central to the new perspective. But it is related a little bit in this sense that if in Galatians 2.16, the contrast is fundamentally between the Jewish law observance and 
the faithfulness of Christ, then the verse would kind of eliminate human response almost entirely. And it would be sort of a contrast between the old covenant and the new. The second point to make is theologically, there's really nothing at all objectionable in thinking that our justification comes through Christ's faithfulness. Of course it does. Precisely because he was faithful, because he was obedient to death, the death of the cross. It's precisely because he was faithful to what God called him to be and to do as the covenant representative, went to death on our behalf, that we are justified. So there's nothing at all theologically problematic about it. We shouldn't, if I may use a coarse English expression, get our knickers in a twist about this from a theological standpoint. But the question is still is, what does the phrase likely mean? And let me talk about that. I, I mentioned the Greek genitive here equivalent to the English double noun construction. We use a lot of these in English. Think of uh, a phrase like fire sale. Well, it's a sale that has some kind of a relationship to fire. But what's the relationship? A place must be having a sale because they've had a fire and they need to sell all their stuff. Well, maybe that's how it originated, but now people have sales when they haven't had a fire. And they still call it a fire sale. How can they do that? How is it a fire sale? Or take a kind of a similar phrase, a fire hose. Is it a hose that's on fire? Is it a hose you're selling because there's been a fire, it's a hose for putting out a fire, right? Storm chaser, one who chases storms. Head case, a person who has a case that has something to do with their head. You see how difficult these are if you're trying to pin them down grammatically. We know what they mean. We put the nouns together in a kind of typical association. This came home to me very much um, when I was talking to a student of mine. I'm a keen amateur photographer, and we were talking about photography, and I mentioned to him the famous photograph of Ansel Adams. Kind of the genitive construction again, an Adams photograph. Clearly, he was immediately thinking of a photograph that Ansel Adams took. Why? Because Ansel Adams is a famous photographer. So we naturally unpack the phrase, the photograph of Ansel Adams, as a photograph he took. If, however, we put Brad Pitt into the same phrase, parenthesis, why Brad Pitt? I think I put this together during one Christmas season when every mall I went into had photographs of Brad Pitt everywhere advertising. I don't even remember what, but that's probably why he appears here. Photograph of Brad Pitt, you don't think of him as a photographer at all. You think of him, oh, he's an actor, model. He's in photographs. So I naturally construe it a different way. I had to disabuse my student of, of the idea. No, I'm thinking of a famous photograph in which Ansel Adams figured, <laughs> standing on top of his modified station wagon in Yosemite with his 8 by 10 inch view camera. The photograph of Ansel Adams, I intended to be an objective genitive. Photograph of Ansel Adams. He took it as a subjective 
genitive photograph taken by Ansel Adams. And the point that became really clear to me, uh, not for the first time, but, but this was kind of brought home to me, that when we're trying to understand these genitives, expectations are critical. A way to ask the question, which is maybe pretty obvious, is when the Galatians read what Paul said here and they came to this phrase, Christ faith, how would they naturally have unpacked it? And here I think there's some important evidence when we turn to the verb. Paul never makes Jesus the subject of the verb believe. Paul never talks about Jesus believing or having faith or exercising faithfulness, however you want to translate the verb. Jesus and Paul is never the subject of that verb. Whereas humans are regularly the subject of the verb. In Galatians 3, Paul's going to go on to talk about Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. And in the verse we're looking at, you know, we who have believed in Christ Jesus. Again, the verb with us as the uh, subject and Christ as the object. So the, the, I think that constitutes evidence for taking the phrase in the traditional way, faith in Jesus Christ. And I admit that there can be a problem of redundancy. In Galatians 2.16, Paul says, believing in Christ Jesus. Why does he say our faith in Christ as well? Well, he does it there for repetition pretty clearly. So it's not really redundant. Now, again, I don't want to make too much of this issue. I don't think it's altogether significant theologically at the end of the day. But at the end of the day, my point, obviously, is that I'm taking Galatians 2.16, then, in the way it's usually been understood. I think the traditional rendering of works of the law and the way we've talked about and faith in Christ and the way we've just talked about uh, seems to be well justified in the language and the context of Paul here. You're saying there's no importance about whether you translate it, we're justified by faith in Christ or we're justified by Christ's faith? You don't think there's a... No, because there are plenty of places where Paul uses the verb and makes clear we are justified by our faith in Christ. So I, you know, I... So you're saying there's so few occasions that we have to worry about that we just... These, these could go either way. And uh, obviously Paul talks about very explicitly, I think, about uh, human believing as necessary for justification. And he talks about Christ's uh, obedience as necessary for our justification. Philippians 2, Romans 5, you have both of those. So the question is, which category do these particular texts fall into? And I don't think it ultimately makes that much difference, which category we put them in. And it's kind of interesting the NET uses kind of the, the reverse of your argument because they're saying in their, their uh, subject note or their translation note that, uh, that the, the pistis takes a personal genitive is almost never an object of a genitive. Or, uh, in other words, every time it, there's a person, it uses the subjective genitive. No. Yes. And then they give up They're just wrong. <laughs> so that volume I mentioned, for instance, has an essay on the church fathers where they, uh, the author points out uh, many, many occasions of the reverse. Mark 12, have the faith of God. 
is pretty clearly have faith in God, where you have a very similar occurrence of the, the noun plus, in this case, a divine name, God. And even the faith of Abraham, which is the usual example people cite here, is made clear that, yeah, there you have a human who is doing the believing, precisely the point, so that when you have Christ faith and you don't have a human, as it were, you have a divine name, it works the other way. Okay. So should I write on that note? You don't need to. They, they've, Dan, I've talked to Dan Wallace about this at some, some length. He, he didn't convince me. I didn't convince him, but, you know. So, so you think that's Wallace's note? Yeah, that's Wallace. It's taken almost directly out of his grammar. Yeah, Steve. Um, looking at Galatians 2.16, you have two times the, the noun phrase is used. Uh-huh. One time the verbal phrase is used. Clearly the verbal phrase refers to believing in Christ. Yeah. And that, to me, I, just reading that, it looks like a pretty strong argument that that is also the way he's intending the noun phrase, especially since consistently he's, he's contrasting words of the law versus faith versus Christ's faith. Yeah. Works of law versus believing in Christ, works of law versus Christ's faith. Is that, am I correct in looking at that saying that pushes me pretty strongly toward taking it, those three phrases the same? It's a little bit of a double-edged argument. Your, your argument is, is, is fair enough, because in this verse in particular, where Paul seems to be repeating his point, you know, works of the law three times, and you would expect the contrast to work the same way all three times, yes, People argue it the other way, say, well, in terms of the redundancy here, if Paul wanted to say this, that's what he would have said. Why did he shift to a different construction then? He's kept works of the law the same throughout. If he wanted to talk about believing in Christ, why didn't he just keep the verb as he does there all three times? But the fact he shifts construction might signal he means something a little different by it. I'm not persuaded by that, but you know, you can see people making the argument the other way too. So it's not decisive. Yeah, it's it's helpful. It's probably way past our break time, and probably some of you are dying for your break, so let me, let me give you that. We'll kind of move on from here then, and we need to get on to other texts and not spend all our time on Galatians 2.16. Thank you for listening to this lecture, brought to you by biblicaltraining.org. Feel free to make copies of this lecture to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.biblicaltraining.org. There you will find the finest in evangelical teaching for use in the home and the church, and it is absolutely free. Our curriculum includes classes for new believers, lay education classes, and seminary-level classes taught by some of the finest seminary teachers drawn from a wide range of evangelical traditions.